Monday night, May 6th at the Hyatt Regency in San Francisco. You're invited to join athletes and celebs at the Bay Area Sports Hall of Fame Enshrinement Dinner. Be there to celebrate this year's class featuring Olympic swimmer Jenny Thompson, San Jose Earthquakes legend Chris Wondolowski, Niners Super Bowl hero John Taylor, Sharks icon Patrick Marlowe, and the architect of the Giants dynasty, Brian Sabian. Be a part of this star-studded evening benefiting Special Olympics Northern California. To purchase tickets, visit Bayshoff.org. That's B-A-S-H-O-F.org. On today's episode of Where Are They Now? We talk to the first head coach in the history of the San Jose Sharks, George Kingston, whose characteristic look behind the bench projected an image of class. And his intense but educational approach to hockey was a major factor in the first two years of Sharks hockey history. We begin our conversation by talking about George's hometown, Bigger Saskatchewan, and the phrase, New York City is big, but this is bigger. Well, actually, it was where I was born, uh, where I came from was a farm about uh, 21 miles away. But, you know, in that time, Saskatchewan, uh, you, uh, my mother went to where you had a safe delivery of a, a baby, you know, so that got me to bigger Saskatchewan. I could easily have gone to Battleford, Saskatchewan. It's almost equidistant. But the important part was the, the farm was great. And, you know, it's like Jeff Rogers and all those other guys that come off the farm there, uh, players that are respected because they uh, know how to work. They also appreciate what they have. Absolutely. You're grounded very, very well. But, you know, then there were young men like Marco Sturm that couldn't be more grounded, you know, and I can illustrate a lot of others. He's not a farm boy, but he's a small town boy in Germany near the uh, Bavaria plant of BMW, BMW. Let's talk about how you got into coaching, George. That was at the University of Calgary after your playing days were over, first as an assistant coach and then as a head coach. You were one of the early proponents of hockey as an educational experience, and certainly not only in sport, but in life. I was wondering if that book by Lloyd Percival, The Hockey Handbook, had any influence on you, because that was one of the first real educational approaches to the sport. Uh, actually, I think that... Uh... The difference from hockey and other sports that are at the pro level is simply whether or not uh, you had leaders who were writing books. Now, Lloyd Percival was one who, you know, he was the founder in a lot of ways of the Soviet Union hockey. Uh, Anatoly Tarasov uh, consulted his book very much. And in forming a lot of, uh, you know, his philosophy, though, was we're going to come at you and we're going to play offensive hockey. Oh, players want to have fun. They want to play hockey on the offensive side of the puck. I happen to agree with him on that. I think the, the game at the pro level has to be fun. The game at the college level has to be fun when you're training and so forth, you know. So there always had to be good moments that way. And... Uh, you know, if there's anything that I would hang my hat on, it was my unfortunate experiences as a young hockey player in terms of how people treated and re uh, failed to respect hockey players. We were just, I was in the Detroit system at age 14, unbeknownst to me, Dan. But the fact was that uh, when I met a football coach, Murray Smith, and a hockey coach, Claire Drake, that changed my uh 
trajectory from uh, architecture to physical education and sport. And then it changed it to wanting to make coaching certification, which I did, uh, you know, through being at uh, U Calgary and then going on to the Coaching Association of Canada on their board. And I ultimately chaired their board. And we put in a national coach certification program that spread to every sport in Canada. And so we wanted to certify coaches uh, so that they uh, were giving the athletes, uh, young women and men in their charge, a good experience and not being disrespected. You know, I mean, uh, look at the purge that happened uh, recently in professional, the NHL. But, you know, now there's an entitled generation. There's a whole lot of difference there in many of the athletes coming up that I see. But at the earlier time, uh, a lot of athletes in junior hockey and all the leadership there, they weren't respected nearly as much as they deserved. Why, why was it like that in the 1950s in the Red Wings organization? Maybe you can explain what it was like when you went there. Well, personalities are personalities, you know, and Jack Adams was a, a, a hated coach. Uh, and, you know, the irony of this is that he has the uh, coaches award still in the National Hockey League. Uh, when I was with the NHL Coaches Association, we did propose that uh, we update that to more of the modern coach. Uh, Jack Adams obviously won when he was general manager coach. He had total control over the athletes. And if Gordie Howe came from a place about 50 kilometers where, from where I was born, and Gordie Howe was, uh, and, you know, all the Abel and Lindsay and uh, Kelly and all of those uh, wonderful players, they knew they weren't respected. I mean, that was the kind of, uh, you know, lack of respect that was accorded to hockey players. And even later, you know, you didn't like a player, then you traded them to a team that was uh, buried and you'd never see them again, you thought. You know, so it, it was a, a very tough business. And it's not to say that it isn't a tough business still, but there's a lot more civility and the requirement for decency and how you're dealing with uh, your players and staff and so forth. That's just an evolution. Well, so much has changed between then and now. It's almost as if it was a different universe. In those days, Dan, you know, when they went from uh, by train, of course, the, uh, there was an awful lot of uh, alcohol that was on board. Before, for lunches and everything, the brownies, you know, the barley sandwiches and so forth. And it, it was a different era. But it was an era that was a tough era to play hockey and it was a man's game and it was a code of the players. The player had the control over the game, not the referee. I mean, that's a huge change in, in the NHL and in professional sport. It's hard for players to control their own game. How did they do that? Simply that they, they were the show. And the code of the enforcer, the code of how you played, the code of a player watching on the bench, and if someone did dirt to another player, then uh, that's where the enforcer came in, or that was where the quiet words were to bring players back into respecting the good players and being very careful that you're not injuring the good players. And if you wanted to dish dirt, then there were lots of players that could uh, match you up on that that front. 
Now, the Red Wings organization took an interest in you, but you never actually played in Detroit. So why don't you describe your evolution from that point on? I started uh, teaching high school in Edmonton for six years and then worked with uh, what was called mite hockey and then midget hockey. And then we tried to get high school hockey going. But all the way along that, I was playing senior hockey while I was, uh, you know, teaching uh, high school. And then uh, I was a candidate for the 64 Olympic team and uh, blew out a shoulder. And that, that was sort of like, okay, I played till 67 when uh, I represented Alberta with the University of Alberta in the Canadian, first Canadian Winter Games. And that's where Scotty Bowman saw me. Saw me. I was a very good skater. And uh, I, I, by that time, I was playing defense and good puck mover and, uh, you know, just came into the play, and uh, by that time, I was a little smarter hockey player, too. <laughs> Not just all the hard work, but smarter work. Because you learn, when you're standing, sitting on a bench, you learn uh, to watch a player like Gal Fielder. You, you watch the efficiencies of uh, the more experienced players, and you learn. So as your playing career wound down, you started to get into coaching more seriously and you became hooked up with a man named Claire Drake, who's one of the legends in Canadian college hockey history and really in the history of the entire Canadian national program. What made people like Claire Drake different than the previous generation of coaches and how did that influence you? Tomorrow you're going to be a better hockey player and here's how you can be a better hockey player. We're going to work it on the ice today. I want you to think about when you come to training tomorrow that you're going to be a better hockey player. And it was simply, you know, good, better, best. Never let it rest until you're good is better and you're better best. It's probably what I heard from my grandmother, you know, in Saskatchewan. But the fact was, it was as simple as that. Uh, tomorrow, you know, and the other thing, positive, positive, positive. Today was good, but tomorrow's better, you know, so. But, you know, the bottom line was it was simply uh, an opportunity to uh, be expected to be better. Wherever you were, how good you were, you could be better. And so that, in a nutshell, I called it the pursuit of excellence. And I, I loved my coaching time at the U Calgary. Uh, we did all kinds of training things uh, because Right at the very start, I went and studied for five months in the Soviet Union, in then Czechoslovakia, Sweden, and Finland, because I had played against, uh, you know, their athletes in uh, an earlier time. And I respected that there was a different game of hockey and the training was different. And I thought it was better in which it was. I mean, there was more of a scientific approach, if I could put it like that. There was more of a scholarly approach to the whole game and they had things in a different way. And so it was a huge learning curve for me. And uh, that was something where I met a lot of the personalities uh, of the game and uh, went to seminars in the summer. And for me, uh, you know, okay, I was a jock, I'm a sport guy, but I was a very serious sport guy. If I'm going to be in this, I'm going to be a communicator uh, through being a professor at the University of Calgary. And ultimately, I, you know, I was a full professor in everything scientific because I did research on the game as well as, uh, you know, having a laboratory every day to go to train and to work with athletes to try to help them be more efficient, 
in their skating and their uh, team play and their thinking of the game. And when I left in 88, for example, we were doing all kinds of work with the uh, neuro part of the game. We were looking at how do you make decisions quicker? I mean, early in the time, I looked at the game and said, it has to be more of a game of speed. And so every athlete has to process information much sooner, Dan, in order to become a, a player that can do those things in per unit of time, which is less and less as the speed of the game increases. As the athletes are better trained, they're better conditioned, they're better prepared, they work in the off season, why is that? It's the business of the game. The business is how do you become successful in whatever line of work you want to be? I mean, that's really what I tried to do with the Sharks in my time there. You know, and happily, like, I think Wade Flaherty was the longest uh, career in, uh, from the original Shark group. Why? You know, he was a very uh, studious kind of guy. Look at Mike Sullivan. Look at his career. You know, the most pride I have from the early time with the San Jose Sharks, you know, Doug Wilson, be able for me to coach a future Hall of Famer. You know, Doug is really, really special. And I can all but just congratulate him for that recognition so well-deserved. But we had Kelly Kissio and we had Dean Evison. We had old, older players like the Perry Andersons. We had a number of really good journeyman leaders. And what you find in the chemistry of teams is the leadership. The leadership is going to be absolutely critical to where all of the players come into the game and advance in the game. It's a business. We're having a great conversation with the first head coach in the history of the San Jose Sharks, George Kingston. There was a lot of fun in those two years at the Cow Palace when you were the head coach of the Sharks, George, but there was also a lot of adversity. And it's really amazing to note that the players that were on that roster, so many of them have gone on to become coaches or managers or other major figures in the sport today. And I wondered if that adversity helped mold them into the people that they are today. Absolutely. Adversity, you know, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you better. And so from my view, Dan, absolutely. Uh, I think that what Jack Ferreira drafted, and the only question I had for him, what is the character of the player you're bringing in? Because I learned that from Murray Smith and Claire Drake, that if you're going to be successful, you drafted, you worked with, you chose. You know, I had 250 kids try out for the U Calgary. And so out of that, I was looking at putting them into one-on-ones, two-on-twos, small games, and I'd also never recruited until the end of the season when uh, athletes, whether it was juvenile hockey or junior hockey or whatever, I wanted to see them in playoffs because every weekend, what makes college hockey great is you train and then you play, and you play two games a week, and it's all out, you know, high-intensity hockey. And that's where the speed element became so critical because we had to do things per unit of time faster. We had to be stronger. So you used all the off-ice resources. And of course, my travels, you know, to the Soviet Union and watching the team prep for the 72 series, watching the Czechs have to compete against the Russians. 
And the hardest, toughest hockey games I ever saw were the Czechs playing the Russians because the Russians were the dominant uh, power at that time, not just in hockey, but the brutal repression in the, you know, the East Bloc. And the Czech people worked six and seven days a week to produce, and all of the goods went to the Soviet Union. And that was at all of the East Bloc countries. It was a really tough existence. When those players were coming up through, it goes to your point about adversity, the, the coal to the diamonds. But you know, the character I'll come back to, Dan, that was the biggest thing that Jack Ferreira stood for. And I have total respect. And what happened to him? You know the story, and I don't like the story. I never liked that part of the chapter because I left a really great job uh, prepping a Norwegian team for the Olympics, but also consulting with how do you develop uh, volunteers that we had in Calgary for the 88 Winter Olympics? How does Norway do that for Lillehammer? For me, ultimately, uh, I worked with them, you know, the years and consulted with them later. And Lillehammer was, for me, the absolute best Winter Olympic Games ever. They, the Norwegians are a pursuit of excellence. And if I go back to my time, the U Calgary, I could pursue excellence. Then in the 80s, coaching with Dave King, and then I took a sabbatical, and we were playing against the best of the uh, Olympic era and world championship Soviet Union teams. And ultimately, you know, I, I got to know Igor Larionov and Sergei Makarov and all of those players that could speak English. And if they couldn't, we used to meet in the fire escape and talk about hockey because they wanted to know about, you know, North American hockey. And so ultimately, the reason Igor came to the Sharks and uh, Sergey, uh, I had, I thought I was going to get my first, uh, my first year. Jack was a GM. My second year, we had that triumvirate that was, you know, designed to fail, because the two guys that were on the other side were going to be the two guys on the other side. And I put together a deal with Don Baisley, who was an agent for many of the Swedish and Finnish players for Timo Solani to come to the San Jose Sharks for year two. Mike Smith in Winnipeg uh, couldn't handle his contract and he wanted Pat Falloon and Neil Wilkinson. Would you have made a trade for Timo Solani to come in and start to, you know, he only had what, 76 goals, I think, Dan? You know? Most anyway. of them against the Sharks too. <laughs> <laughs> Field day. <laughs> you know, oh yeah. You know, but, but the fact was, I knew Timo had character. I knew all of those young junior players because I'd been watching them, uh, you know, from really the, the first input into international hockey was 1964, before I became even coach at the U of Calgary. I had played against some of them, you know, anyway. Uh, you know, so for me, uh, the best memory of the Sharks the character of the players in the community. They sold hockey, whether it was sharks in the parks, whether it was meetings with fans, whether it was wherever, whenever, those guys were just tremendous representatives of all the best in hockey. They were admired because they had to work hard. And we had those tough losses and we had adversity 
always, you know, and, and I got fined for speaking out about the fact that why did the Sharks get the first penalty and the first power play goal before they got out of the period one meant for us a low-scoring team. I look at the current Sharks and I worry about their ability to score goals. And it's really a tough game if you don't have great goaltending. And I hope Dubnik will come in and give... I, I respect Martin Jones. I think he's a very, very good goaltender. But, you know, even in 56 games, that's more like a college schedule with, you know, all the uh, exhibition and uh, other matches in a game. They're up into the 40s and 50s and so forth. But the overall is that uh, there's an awful lot of uh, similarity now. And players always felt like the old line players, they always wanted about a 50, 60 game schedule. But then the money part of the game takes over. And then they could really, like college players, why do you see so many U.S. college players now dominating the entry into the game of hockey? It's a great training preparation. And they're also being, uh, a couple of years later, entering the game, if they choose. I mean, if they're really phenomenal, like a Makar, for example, in Colorado, then, you know, it doesn't matter where he's going to be. He's going to be in the NHL. I mean, he's a phenomenal talent. And there are other phenomenal ta talents that are out there. But what I had learned, for example, going to Minnesota after I had been with Calgary Flames uh, for half a dozen years was that Minnesota doomed their young players by expecting, as we did, Pat Falloon was going to be uh, the answer going forward. Young players need leadership and support. We surrounded Pat Falloon and Ray Whitney, and, and my, I would have made one difference with Pat Falloon. I tried to uh, convince Jack, as did Bob Murdoch, to have him play the first part of the year with the Canadian Olympic team. Learn how to play defense, learn how to work harder, because both Ray Whitney and Pat Falloon had played for the Spokane Chiefs. They played 40 minutes a game. They played low intensity, save your power, you know, pick your innings kind of hockey. Well, the evolution of professional hockey when I was coaching was very much, you had to go, 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 and you had to have three to four lines, go, go, going. And we tried to play as much four line hockey and use all our bench because we had an uphill game every time we played and entered the ice against those experienced teams. And we had always about, what, 45-plus players that were going through the door in my two years. That's really tough because we had injuries because we played hard. But we also just had to play hard to try to score goals. We were life and death to score a goal, you know. But uh, it wasn't that we didn't play good defense. It was simply that there were other athletes who were probably able. To, as, look at the best players in the NHL. They still undress defensemen. They still get free. Look at how McKinnon has risen to be just one of the absolute best players in the game. And who else? He's got five sidekicks with him. And then they got another couple good defensemen coming up. And just, you know... Colorado have drafted well. San Jose, uh, you know, I, I think that it's 
It's a question, and I don't know. And I have, you know, great respect for the job Doug and others have done with the Sharks. They've been very, very competitive until last year. Last year, lowest scoring team or among the lowest, I think. And then you're forced to play much more defense. And you play from a different side of the ledger. First goals impact a game between upwards of 60 and about 70% of outcomes are dependent on the first goal. And that was what I knew going into our first two years in San Jose. And that's why I spoke out and was fined uh, for speaking out about the fact that we were expected not to be good. And we wanted to have that change. And we wanted not to have to have the first penalty and the second penalty into most of the games. It wasn't fair to the athletes and it wasn't fair to the perception of what the referees saw in the game. Anyway, I had to speak because our players work so damn hard. We needed to get that first goal. And they played hard. And in the two years in the Cow Palace, uh, it was a wonderful rapport with the fans. And ultimately, a lot of the fans and the fact that we spent a lot of time, you know, with the players down in San Jose getting ready for the move to the, you know, the Shark Tank two years and one year later, it was a matter that there was the sharks in the parks and there were lots of uh, sort of promotional things centered out of San Jose. Anyway, you know, Dan, I have great memories of the players. I have great memories of the fans and the interaction uh, that our players provided to the fans sold the game, whereas Charles O'Finley couldn't sell the game uh, with the Oakland Seals at an earlier time in that highly competitive Bay Area market. It's, a, you know, with the college teams and the professional sports, and you had elite teams there. The Niners, of course, were pretty damn good when we were there. You know, it, it's a tough uh, market, but uh, uh, it's a delight to see the fans have been, you know, largely supportive, but it's a tougher time now to try to rebuild. If you're on that rebuild formula, I'm not sure, you know, exactly the philosophy, but uh, it's tough to get some of the premier players, you know, and when I was in Florida, we had to bring in Joe Neuendike and Gary Roberts. We had to teach the young players how to be good pros every night, consistent hockey players, giving your best, but even your best had to be better and that type of thing. And, and you know, I go back to leadership and character. So many memories of those great years, George, including that fabled road trip that started in Hartford when we had an 11-hour-plus plane delay and everybody was sitting around playing cards in the FBO in Oakland, waiting for a tire to get fixed, and finally getting to Hartford, 6 o'clock in the morning, day of the game. We had a lot of misadventures, if we could put it that way. Uh, and that also case-hardened. But, you know, the other trip I was recalling, where there were gun shows and RV shows in the Cow Palace in year two, and we were on the road for most of January, and eventually... We flew the team into, flew the uh, family into Lake Arrowhead, and we had a couple of days there before we put LA, and that was, uh, what, I don't know, uh, late uh, January, about. Uh, and, you know, we were going back and up this way and over that way, west and then north and then south and all of that. 
And so, you know, it was, it was tough to be a Shark, and it's tough for the expansion team. One great aspect of your tenure as the coach, George, is you wanted everybody to feel that they were part of a family, and that was really emphasized a couple of times during the year. We hosted the Shark team for the Christmas party, which was unheard of at that time uh, for those guys in, in pro hockey, that the coaches would just throw a Christmas party. And we just decided our house was available. And so we did one of those Christmas tree parties where if you like your gift, you keep it and you try to keep it because the next person can come to the tree. And if they don't like theirs or they choose simply to take yours, you know, and it was that fun. Anyway, we had to do some things that were fun and that were team building and everything. The purpose of feeling like family by going to Sun Valley, for example, it was a tough existence for the players and for their spouses. It's inevitable. You know, there, there were divorces in professional football and hockey and everything like that. It's tough to bring home your game. And our players in San Jose at that time really cared about their game. They cared to win. They cared. And they were really caring people. And, you know, it, it was tough. And so we had to look after the family, to give them something like that. And to see them on sleigh rides and to see all of the, the fun we had, it was, it was a tremendous experience for the, for the players. And I'm glad they have a good memory because it was a tough day most of the other days. Do you follow the achievements of players like Patrick Marlowe today? I think uh, he's uh, equivalent to Tom Brady. Not only are you talking about an effortless skater, a smart hockey player, he's a guy that goes into the combat zone, but he's been very effective as a moving target, not to be hit hard. His brain is a good brain, is what I'm saying. George, thanks so much for spending all this time with us. We really appreciate it, and we really thank you for your first-class approach to hockey and the way that you represented the San Jose Sharks from the very first year of the franchise. Thanks again. Thank you very much, partner, because I look at it as a mutual journey and every respect that I appreciate very much being accorded. Dan, you're looking in your mirror. Thank you. George Kingston, the first coach in the history of the San Jose Sharks, is a very special person. I'm Dan Rusinowski. Join me next time for Where Are They Now?